Today's show is sponsored by Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else you are investing into the software solution you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than a thousand software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what you're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, Pricing Wire delivers easy to understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or costly regrets, and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, PricingWire can help. Just go to PricingWire.com and book a strategy session today. PricingWire helps technology innovators like you design the right offerings, better quantify and message value, set and change prices, select the right pricing metrics, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you. Why wouldn't you want to achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence? Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is Good to be with you once again this week, uh, probably listening to this. If you're listening to it on the day it comes out, happy Halloween to everybody. Hope everybody goes out and has some fun, uh, whether you're just dressing up and going to a party or you're taking the kids out for some candy or you're stealing your kids' candy, however you celebrate Halloween. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you have some fun with it. First and foremost, let's uh, wish a big 50th birthday uh, celebration to the internet. Good job, internet. You're still around 50 years later, you know, the old... The grand old dame of the, of uh, technology still around, you know. I remember back when you know there was only IP four, uh, IPv four addresses, and before all you crazy kids came out with your face chats and your tweet talks and all these other cool things that you do nowadays. Back when the internet was just three or four universities, you know, trying to send some probably stolen research papers back and forth. But congratulations, internet, you made it to fifty. I don't exactly know what the I think that's the uh, the uh, diamond anniversary. So get out there, you know, have your birthday parties, get a piece of cake for the internet. Uh, a little bit of news this week because it was sort of earnings week for a lot of the big cloud providers, or at least a lot of the big companies that also happen to be cloud providers. Uh, earnings from Google, AWS, and uh, at least Google and AWS uh, this week. So um, Google announced their earnings. Uh, their earnings were sort of interesting people, um, Google Alphabet, so uh, way up above the uh, GCP earnings, but uh, Google's earnings or Alphabet's earnings, uh, the numbers were up, uh, but the profitability was way down. So profitability was down like 23%. So um, some things going on in their uh, sort of the non-cloud business. The cloud business did report uh, that they beat expectations, although they didn't really break out a specific number. So Google is still the one cloud provider who doesn't really break out their number, which um, you know sort of leads to some speculation about just how big it is. But uh, Google did announce their numbers, um, you know, seemed to be growing from that perspective. We do hear a lot um, out in the field and from companies in terms of uh, Google having a much broader sales presence out in the market. And that's uh, very much what uh, Thomas Kurian had uh, promised in taking over Google. Um, Amazon announced their numbers and uh, Amazon's numbers, uh, at least AWS's numbers, since they are specifically broken out, uh, continue to see revenue growth, but they are uh, beginning to see, and I think this is the fourth or fifth quarter in a row where they are seeing um, growth be slower than the quarter before. So still 35% uh, either year over year or quarter over quarter growth. Uh, but uh, that number has been, um, you know, declining. And there's some links in the in the notes from uh, from Jordan Nevitt, who does a really good job um, at uh, covering uh, AWS. So, um, you know, I think this is an indication of. 
um, hey, uh, large large numbers are harder to grow than, than smaller numbers. And also uh, the market has become uh, more saturated, more competitive. So AWS still pretty much in the number one slot, but uh, you know the, the market is, is no longer allowing it to just grow uh, freely and wildly as it did in the past. So those will be interesting to watch uh, sort of quarter to quarter trends if, if Amazon or AWS uh, continues to have some uh, growth rate uh, struggles, or sometimes when we see this happen from Amazon and AWS in the past, um, it's uh, indicative of very big buildup of them, uh, you know, trying to build out and grow out their business, and so maybe profitability is down. So Amazon's always a little tricky to watch uh, because of the way they do internal accounting and are they growing uh, or are they spending and, and stuff like that. Uh, the other real big news was the uh, for a lot of people that <clears throat> at least follow from the outside, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense had a huge contract called the Jedi J E. DI, Jedi contract, um, that was supposed to be a 10-year, $10 billion uh, one vendor winner take all thing, and for a long time, uh, the uh, the bookies and the betting had this uh, pegged at AWS was going to win the contract. Um, turns out that Microsoft Azure ended up winning the contract. So, it'd be very interesting. Number one to see um, it was narrowed down to AWS and Azure. Uh, whether or not AWS can test this legally uh, as to why they why they lost. Uh, the second thing is, I think the ten billion dollar number is a little bit. I don't want to say overblown, but it's sort of the maximum of the contract, and there are within the contract uh, that talk about, um, you know, after a couple of years, uh, they can they can sort of renegotiate some things or reevaluate some things. So this may not turn out to be a $10 billion contract after all. Uh, it may end up not actually going to Azure if, uh, if AWS, you know, uh, comes back and tries to fight this in the courts. Uh, but it is interesting to see and again, uh, there will be analysts and experts coming out of the woodwork. That will not be us because we did not have insight into what was asked for in this contract. But they talked a lot about uh, you know being able to do faster application development, bigger data mining, you know, kind of common types of things. Uh, but it would be very interesting at some point. I'm sure we'll see some some tell alls about maybe why Ada, uh, Azure was selected over AWS. And I think if nothing else, um, you know, this does sort of uh, align to some of the greater levels of competition and uh, you know. Um, kind of closing of the gap between the largest cloud providers that are out there. So this will be an interesting thing to track. Uh, whether or not it will heavily influence other large buyers in the market or not will will be you know wait to be seen. Uh, but sort of an interesting thing that was going on. And then finally, for those of you that follow the podcasting world, and thank you all for listening. Um, you know we've we've mentioned before that the show this year is is up about forty percent, which has been fantastic. Uh, welcome to all the new listeners. Uh, but Spotify, who had recently gotten into the podcasting business, had basically said. Um, our podcasting business is up about 40%. So maybe all those new listeners are all coming in from Spotify. So if so, great. Welcome Spotify-based uh, podcast listeners. Uh, but it is good to see the podcasting world grow. It's great to see new learning uh, you know, spread out uh, to lots of people. And uh, again, thank you to everybody who listens to the show and tells a friend. And uh, obviously, some of you listen to it on Spotify. So with that, we're going to get to our interview. Really interesting interview this week, kind of talking about um, with the 50th interview, 50th anniversary birthday of the internet, um, you know, just some some basic technologies around how the internet works, around HTTP, around CDNs, around proxies and load balancers and stuff that, you know, maybe we uh, take for granted sometimes. And it's always sort of important to come back and, and, uh, and think about and listen to the basics around how these technologies work, because they will impact how you design applications, how you design networks, how you design systems. And so really a fun interview and fun conversation I think you'll like. Let's get to that now. Today's sponsor is Datadog the real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. 
Datadog's cluster agent streamlines data collection from large container clusters and allows you to auto-scale Kubernetes workloads based on any metric you've already collected with Datadog. To start monitoring your Kubernetes clusters, sign up for a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadoghq.com slash cloudcast to get started. And we're back. It is good to be back with everybody. And, you know, folks, the last couple of shows, we've uh, we've kind of swung back. You know, we've, we always sort of swing back and forth between technology deep dives, sometimes the business aspects of of the industry. And, and this week, we're going to kind of swing back to the technology side of things. Um, you know, and a lot of times we we take for granted sort of how the internet works. I think we've, for those of us that have been around for a long time, and we used to have to do crazy things like install TCP IP stacks and figure out how to do subnet masking and other stuff that, you know, is really low level things. Nobody thinks about that anymore. Just the internet just works. You type stuff in a browser and and things just work. But every once in a while, it's useful for us to to kind of go back and think, how does how how do all these things work? And and why it's important to understand that is because everything in technology tends to be a building block. We build upon certain fundamentals. Once we understand those well, the next things that come along become easier to understand because they just build on top of those other building blocks. And so today we thought it would be very interesting kind of for a couple of reasons to really go back and deep dive into some aspects of how the internet works, how things like HTTP work um, with uh, Julia Evans, who is both a software engineer, a data scientist, and I'll call sort of an artist. Uh, And Julia, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you on because uh, for me personally, you know, as, as we tend to do these days, I've, I've followed your Twitter feed for a while and I've been seeing these really cool ways that you visualize how you learn technology. And I thought it'd be fun to have you come on the show and not only teach us a little bit about certain aspects of technology, but also kind of your thought process for learning because a lot of people come to this show to learn new technology. So um, first off, give us a little bit of your background. I mentioned that, you know, you've been done software engineering and, and data science, but give us a little bit of your background and then we'll dive into some of this this learning. Um, so at the beginning of my career, I started out working in machine learning and then I got really excited about like how computers work. And I was like, oh, like there's all this like computer networking stuff, there's operating systems, what's happening? Um, and so then I went to work in infrastructure and I worked on a team that worked on like Kubernetes and Envoy. Yeah. So that's, so I, you know, I, I think your, your background is not unlike a lot of people that, that have come on before, which is um, you started somewhere in it, you got excited about things, uh, you started wanting to learn more, your job took you in, in different directions. And, uh, you know, you went from sort of it was computers to that was this more sophisticated stuff. It was containers. It was Kubernetes. It was data science. Um, so you're, you know, I, I take it you're very much somebody who who enjoys the learning process. Yeah, and the the reason I I got into um, sort of the world of things like Kubernetes is because I felt like in that world I could always understand exactly what was happening at the end of the day if I didn't know. Like if I didn't know what was going on, because I was like, okay, these are computers, there are network requests, and like if something is going wrong, even if it's in like a distributed system, I can always get to the bottom of it, um, and that was what I really loved about it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is kind of a weird feeling, uh, I guess, on both sides when you have no idea how something works, and you're just, you know, you're you're hitting the enter key, and it, it either works or it doesn't work, and you're like, ah, I don't, I know what's going on. And then once you dig into it and you kind of get it, you're like, okay, I understand this talks to this and it requires this. And uh, so there's there's a certain sense of like either uh, depression or euphoria, depending on how well you understand things. So it's, it is sort of important to dive in and be like, how does, how does this stuff work? What happens when I hit the enter key on a keyboard? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that even when I don't understand something, I think I get kind of excited because I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm going to learn like what's behind the wall 
of like this thing that I never thought about before. Right. 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 So, um, so I mentioned in, in the introduction, um, you know, I've, I've, I've followed your Twitter feed and how I found it. I don't totally know. Sometimes things just pop up. Um, but you have this, uh, you have this gift where, um, you take technologies, a lot of times very you know, new, recent technologies, people would call them merging technologies, and, and you have this really interesting way of, of sort of visualizing them, um, you know, explaining them in a, in a way that somebody can pick up very quickly. Um, you call them zines, uh, but you know, they're, essentially it's a visual medium of how do I figure out how a technology works, what are the, what are the important parts of it, uh, visually how do they connect together. Um, what, what got you started in this process of, you know, a lot of times people will learn, you know, they'll write some code or they'll read a book. How did you turn this into something that you kind of had an output for as well? A lot of people just take it as an input. You, you've created this great output that, that people, uh, love to consume new things with. Um, definitely. So I was, uh, I, I was going to give a talk at PyCon, um, that was about Linux debugging tools. Um, and at that time I was really in love with S-Trace and S-Trace, I was like S-Trace, which is this tool for tracing system calls on Linux. Um, I was like, this is like magic. I can just know what all these programs are doing. Like, and no one had told me about it for a long time. Like I didn't, I think at that point I've been programming for maybe 10, 10 years, eight years. Um, and I'd only learned about S-Trace sort of in the last two years. And when I learned about it, I was like, how could nobody have told me? <laughs> like, this is so cool. I love it so much. Um, and so what I did um, is, is a zine is kind of like a, a booklet. Um, it's, it's like I wrote this zine about S-Trace that was like 16 pages. And uh, so I was giving this conference talk and I was like, I want to have something to give out to people so that they remember about S-Trace. Like they need to know the good news, right? Um, and so I, I wrote this like little zine that was like, here are my favorite command line arguments to S-Trace. I had like two pages of that. Here are my favorite Linux system calls that I learn the most. Here's sort of like what a system call is. Um, it's like the API for your operating system. And like, here are some more resources, right? So I, I just wrote this like really short thing. Um, and I made this booklet. Um, and I went to my like local French shop, I printed out 200 copies. And then I went to the conference and I gave it out of my talk. Um, and people loved it, right? And I was like, Oh, wow, this is like such a fun way to communicate about technology, you know, by like giving someone like a physical paper booklet, um, that they can then like take home and be like, Oh, I love it was called spying on your programs with S-Trace. And yeah, and then I loved that so much that I kept doing it and uh, working on like more of these like little little tiny books about different um, about different technologies. Yeah, no, that, that, that's very very cool. I mean, I know like I've gone to various events and while people want to always give you lots of stuff or they'll point you to a URL, it's you know there are certain there are certain mediums and certain things that seem cool at the time and they're very easy to forget and and the little booklets that different various people have handed out and you know you, you talk about the ones you've handed out i've seen others from you know i think it was either it's either mongodb or somebody used to hand out this little cool brown notebook that had like here's all the commands and here's some pictures in it and and those are the things that like you stick in your pocket it ends up in your notebook you're on the plane going back and you can kind of jot notes on it they're easy to read like there is something about it's, you know, it's, it's tangible, but it's small and like there's, it, it's just, yeah. there's a niche for that thing, which is exactly. very, very cool. And, um, we'll, we'll put some things in the show notes for folks. You literally have dozens and dozens and dozens of these. So, you know, they, well, they cover all I, sorts I, of topics, I, which is I have, cool. Um, I guess I want to correct that a little bit. I have 12. Ah, okay. Um, cause, so cause these are like, are, are like 20 pages. Right? Okay. So like they together contain like maybe hundreds of pages, okay. um, but I have like 12 zines. 
Okay, um, very cool. Yeah, and we'll put the we'll put them in the show notes. Um, but the one I wanted to dig into this week, um, you've been writing about HTTP, which I think to a certain extent I go, yeah, I, I know that I've been using it forever, and uh, you know, there's there's the HTTP version that you type into browsers, and there's the HTTPS version. Um, right. Let's let's kind of talk about the basics that we all use this technology. We don't necessarily think about it all the time, but. What are the most basic things that, as you're thinking about learning it and and then kind of the impact it has on on applications, um, you know, the, 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 walk us through kind of the way that your brain thinks about what you need to know about HTTP, both from, you know, the end user interaction all the way back through all these systems that, that touch it, you know, secure systems and proxies and kind of walk us through the basics of that. Yeah. So the most important thing I would say about to know about HTTP is that Every HTTP sort of like transaction is there's an HTTP request and an HTTP response. And every time you visit a website, um, all that happens, like all your browser is doing is it's sending a bunch of HTTP requests and getting a bunch of HTTP requests back, possibly from different servers. Um, And then it like renders uh, the content from those HTTP responses. And I think the nice thing about this like HTTP request response thing is like it sounds a little complicated, right? Because you're like, okay, what's this protocol like? But an HTTP request um, has only three things in it. Basically, um, it has a path that it's requesting, right? Um, for example, like uh, slash, like if you're going to like google.com slash calendar, it could be like slash calendar. It has a request method, uh, which is like get or post, right? Which, which I'm sure like most people, many people have seen before. Um, it has headers. There are actually four things. I, I counted wrong. Um, so, so it has a bunch of headers, um, which I think we're going talk to talk about later. And it has potentially a body. Um, and responses are sort of the same. Um, they have a status code, headers, and a body. Um, and so what I think what I really love about HTTP is that there's sort of so few pieces to it, you know? Like, you just have, like, you're, you're requesting some path, and then you get a response code back, and then in the request and response, there's, like, headers and maybe a body. And that's it, you know? It's like, and they're all, uh, the headers are all text, too. So it's something that you can just look at with your eyes, you know? It's not, like, some, like, magical binary thing. Um, they're all like, you know, ASCII characters and like English words that you can read and understand. Right, right. Yeah, well, so it, it, it does, it kind of follows this this thing of, you know, to become incredibly ubiquitous and popular on the internet, um, you know, you you have to be, you have to find this sort of magical sweet spot of being incredibly powerful, which is, um, you know, anybody can use it. It can be used for lots of different functions, but it also has to be simple enough that that lots of people can understand it. So like you said, it's, um, you know, it's it's a request and a response. There's, you know, only a handful of of things that are within there and, uh, you know, and, and anybody can read it. So it's, you know, it doesn't have, it's not machine readable, it's human readable. And um, so it is it's sort of fascinating, uh, something that it, that the world depends upon so much is is not unbelievably complicated. You don't need a PhD to figure out how to make it work. Right. And, and in some sense, like in a technological sense, that has to be true, right? Because there are so many different implementations of the HTTP protocol and so many different pieces of software. And if we're complicated, like the developers like would not, like people would not have been able to write so many different implementations, right? Right, right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the delivery mechanism, if you will. So, you know, all of us go to whatever our favorite websites are, whether it's like news or sports or videos or whatever. And the world has the, the the world has gotten very very smart about saying, well, I can't keep sending really big things all over the world. Um, I'd like to sort of make things close to where you are. Um, so we've created these ideas right. of of caches and and content delivery networks. Um, for anybody who knows the term CDN but has never really doesn't really know what it does, 
help us understand this interaction between um, you making a request out of your browser and this network of, of, of content that lives out there that tries to make it closer to us and deliver faster to us and, and things like that. Right. So the way I kind of think about this is it, it used to happen like when, when I was on the internet in like 2004 or something, like I would go to Slashdot and sometimes I would click on a website and it'd be like, oh no, it was Slashdotted. Like this website has died under the, like all of the requests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting in 2019 that this this still happens, but it happens, I think, very rarely that websites kind of get overwhelmed um, by having tons of requests. Um, and I think a big reason for that is content delivery networks. So how they work um, is, so I use one, for example, for my blog. Uh, I use uh, Cloudflare. It doesn't really matter which one it is. Right. Um, and the, the way that works is that they have servers all over all over the world. Right. And when someone uh, makes a request uh, to like Jivens.ca, it'll resolve to an IP address. And I think they'll use sort of like this like local DNS resolution thing. So it'll resolve to like GeoDNS thing where it'll resolve to the IP address that's sort of like closest to them, like the IP address of a server that's close to them physically. Um, so, for example, I live in Montreal. And if I request my website, I can actually see that it's coming from a server in Montreal, even though that's not where like my website server is located. Um, um, so my browser will make a request to this like uh, CDN server in Montreal. Um, and then it, sort of like two different things happen um, depending on whether that server has uh, gotten a, a request for that same page before, right? Um, so if this is the first time that like someone has requested my blog from this server, then the server will be like, then the, then this, the content delivery network, the CDN will be like, oh, this is uh, like a site I know about um, because like I have an account with them, right? But I don't have this page right now. Um, so I'm going to go fetch it from like the, like the, what, what they call like the origin server, right? Which is sort of like, like the, the place where my blog actually lives. So it'll go fetch it and then it'll send it back to me. And then the next time someone gets it from the sa- that same server in Montreal, it'll be like, oh, I already have that. And then it can return it right away. Um, and what that means is that like, if like people are making like hundreds of thousands of requests to let's say this this one server in Montreal, it can handle like 99.99% of the requests, right? Because it, it just needs to like, send that first one request back to the origin and then everything else that can serve itself. And, and is that something as a, as an application developer? So I'm, I'm writing an application, obviously I want it to scale. Is that something I have to, to build into the application or the client for that application that says, Hey, be aware of CDNs and stuff, or, you know, does the CDN sort of network or, or something else say, Oh, okay. Um, we're seeing a lot of requests for the same thing. We'll just kick in and, and make sure that it's, it's sort of cached or made mm-hmm. closer to the person appropriately. What, what's the, who has to do the work there to make the, the, the experience end up being better and faster? Um, someone administering the site needs to do the work manually because the thing is that like not every page can be cached, right? Like for example, if I'm logging into like Gmail or something, I don't want to have like a cached version from 10 minutes ago, right? Like I want my email right now. Um, and so I want to sort of always be making a request to like the real website, if that makes sense. Yep. Sure. Um, and so someone, uh, like it might not be the application developer, right? There may might be someone in a different role at the company. Um, who's sort of in charge of like on a networking team or something, um, if you have that. Um, but if it's a small company, it's probably on you, right? Right. right, right. Um, so, so someone needs to decide, okay, like these are the resources that I want to cache. Um, so typically you'll want to cache uh, images, right? You'll want to cache JavaScript, you'll want to cache CSS, um, things that don't change that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll also need to set uh, things like cache times on them, right? Uh, because if you're serving some JavaScript and that JavaScript file is going to change, you don't want to cache it for like three days, right? Because you want to be able to like deploy new JavaScript code um, and and have it actually show up in people's browsers. You know? Right. Well, and this um, is and this is a this is kind of one of those great examples of, you know, if 
if your organization is set up where it, it's sort of the developers just throw things over the wall, the ops team or network team or whoever has to deal with it, you know, when you have sort of dynamic environments like that, it could be, you know, it could be a blog updates, it could be a score updates, it could be, like you said, something else. There has to be some communication between those groups to go, yeah, this stuff has these characteristics. You need to take those into consideration. We need to to kind of be, a, you know, like you said, I don't want to cache something for three days that really should be refreshed every 30 seconds or something. Yeah, exactly. And I think like like five minutes is like a very common cache time for that reason, like mm-hmm. or something like that, because you're like, okay, if it's like doesn't change for five minutes, it's okay, and that'll probably save me a lot of bandwidth. But like at the same time, it's not being cached for like days. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that, that makes makes sense. And and uh, and obviously these these CDNs then have some awareness of you know, you're in Montreal, I'm in Raleigh. Somebody uh, you know is trying to request the same thing from Australia. They can kind of redirect it towards resources that are closer to them. There's some location awareness. Is that location awareness? Is that like in HTTP or is that in the application or where does that location awareness come from? I think, so I think it can work in a few different ways. Um, I've previously used like sort of GeoDNS, which is actually at the DNS layer. So when your browser like resolves the, uh, the, the domain name, it'll go to an IP address, which is close to you. Gotcha. But there's also something called, I don't really understand multicast. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. Um, but I think I think that there are a couple of different ways it can work. But it, but it's sort of at the IP layer. It's not at the HTTP layer. Definitely. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, let's let's transition a little bit. So we you know we we talked a little about HTTP. Um, I, you can obviously go into a ton of depth on that. I'm gonna I'm gonna point folks to to your recent zine because it does a really good job of going into headers and and things that you'd want to understand and tweak and so forth. Um, we talked a little bit about CDNs and helping us sort of, you know, cache things so we get faster responses. But, you know, there is going to be times when, like you mentioned that... Can I make one comment about yeah, headers absolutely. and CDNs? Absolutely. Um, so one really important HTTP header, because I think a lot of the time people think of HTTP headers as like this like thing they don't need to know about because they're like, I'm just making web pages. Why do I need to know about these headers? Um, but one really important header um, is the cache control header um, where you tell the CDN how long to cache your thing for. Mm. And because like you can't, it's not just going to automatically know, right? You need to tell it like, oh, I want to be five, five minutes, 24 hours somewhere. And that's in an HTTP header called cache control. That's nice. Fine. Oh, good. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. And like, and like I said, you, you do a really good job in, in the stuff that you've written up that, that explains those things. So yeah, the, the, the kind of awareness of what do I need to care about versus, oh, I didn't think I needed to care about anything. Um, you do a very nice job of, of explaining those. Um, let, let's transition a little bit. So uh, some some content, like you mentioned, um, will be in the CDN because it's been accessed recently. Other content, uh, you know, you have to sort of go directly to to the source, if you will, or the server and so forth. Um, and that brings us to another another aspect that kind of gets in the middle of of you and and your server request is is things like load balancers. And I think people right. people kind of get confused. They hear the term load balancer or something and. Um, there's a difference between like what's called le- level layer four load balancers and layer seven load balancers. Give us some sense of, you know, w- what do I have to know? What's the difference between those things? And, w- you know, w- what does HTTP touch and what is IP and, and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. I-, I always find those terms like layer four and layer seven. So like alienating, like, even though I know what they mean, every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, what is that? Um, um, so the way I think about like when I think about layer seven load balancers, to, to that to me that means it's an HTTP load load balancer, um, which means uh, effectively it's going to look at the HTTP headers. Um, and a layer four load balancer is something which is a TCP load balancer, which means like it has literally no idea what's in that HTTP request, um, and it's not going to look at 
any of the headers or anything because it's like these are, this is just data. I have no idea what it is. Um, and so I, I want to talk. I'll talk a little bit about like the difference, like why you would use one or the other, right? Yeah. Um, so um, let's talk about HTTP load balancers. Um, so let, let's think about like Nginx, right? Um, I think it's very common to have like a, a server running Nginx that's sort of like in the front of your website. Like maybe you have a few different um, sites that you're serving, um, like a few different sort of backend servers. You have like, I don't know, an API server and like some other server. <laughs> Yeah, um, like may- maybe like the the server for the marketing site, right? And you want to have um, like one server in front that can kind of route to both of them, right? Um, and uh, to route, like let's say you're sending a request to the um, API server, you need to know that it's um, you need to know that that request is for the API server, right? And it's like how how do you know that? And in Nginx, um, the way that you know um, whether like which sort of uh, like which domain? Um, I think people sometimes call this like virtual virtual hosts, right? Is like the term for it, right. maybe in Apache. Right. Um, so so and I, I used to never know how that worked. Um, and so so the way that uh, nginx can know uh, which site it's for is by looking at a header called the host header, um, which is the only mandatory request header in HTTP. Um, and the reason it's mandatory is because otherwise the uh, server serving the request can't know like what site you're trying to get to, right? Because it, it it like it's being sent an HTTP request sent to an IP address, um, and so like it like literally cannot know the domain unless you put it in the host header, which is why it's required. Um, so you'll set the host header to something like uh, api.yoursite.com or just like yoursite.com. And then Nginx will take the host header and be like, okay, great. That matches um, this like thing you set up in Nginx. And now I can uh, send it to like whatever backend server you have configured there. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think I think people, uh, there's a little bit of complexity and this is, this is where visualization is always Better than than uh, than audio for podcasting, but if you, you know, if you think about it, it's uh, you you want to go to some some website, so you you put that in. Uh, DNS resolves that that name you put into an IP address. It gets routed there. That IP address probably lives on the level or layer four load balancer, which says, "Hey, I represent this IP address, or what they call virtual IP address. It could be sitting in front of five or six different servers that can all do the same thing." But then what you're saying is. Beyond just getting to that IP address, you may want to get to a certain aspect of that domain, uh, you know, some part of that web server or some application specific to it. And so there's got to be something at a higher level that says, oh, okay, read, read that, read that header, like you said, and then get that to the specific process on any given machine that can serve those things, right? So there's, there's sort of yeah. multiple layers of what has to resolve to say, get it to something. And then these load balancers make sure that it always gets to something that's working. Yeah, and if you think about sort of like a site like I don't know Cloudflare or like like Netlify, like like any or like GitHub Pages maybe is a good example, mm-hmm. right? Like like if you're going to like um, like mycoolpage.github.io, um, definitely the server that's serving that page doesn't only have one website. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Yeah, it definitely has like thousands of websites, um, and so like I think I think like often when you think of a server, you think of something that's serving one website, but I think for most websites on the internet, that's completely untrue, right? Right. And so, yeah, I think it's useful to think about it that way. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, everything ends up being a, a big uh, hardware resource that gets virtualized to serve lots of different functions at the same time. So um, very cool. So we've, we've kind of walked through, um, you know, getting to the, getting to the, the information, the content, whether it's local to us or we need to get to it. Um, and then obviously, you know, you can't go a day without seeing some sort of breach or hack or something. Um, 
how does security play into into HTTP? Is it just is it just a matter of putting HTTPS in your browser, or what else has to go on to make sure that you know my my communications is safe and secure? Yeah. Um. So there are two big parts of with HTTP. There's basically like two totally different security directions. Um. One of them is like you said, HTTPS, right, or TLS. And actually, let's talk about how that works for a minute because yeah. I think that a lot of people don't know. So because it's like when you type that extra S, like what happens, right? Like is it a different protocol? Right. A little lock shows up. I think I'm good. Yeah. Exactly. A little lock shows up, and then you're good. And I mean, one one really nice thing also that's happening on the internet in 2019 is that like most websites are encrypted. And if your website isn't encrypted, people are like, what's going on? Like we have let's encrypt, get with the program, right? Like, right. Um, which, which is wonderful. Um, but like what's happening? Uh, so um, when your browser um, goes to like an HTTPS website, uh, what it does at like a very basic level um, is it writes the HTTP request, right? Like it's like, okay, I, I, I have this like, you know, I'm making like a get request to like, whatever, reddit.com um, slash like pictures or whatever. Um, and uh, I want it. I want to um, hear like some headers um, that the browser has set um, that like the user agent. And then, so, so it takes that get request, right? And then it will encrypt it um, using a protocol called TLS. Um, okay. And so I think the, the sort of like important thing to know is that HTTP and HTTPS both use the HTTP protocol. You know, it's not like a different protocol. Yep. It's just that like all of the messages sent with the HTTP protocol with uh, HTTPS end up being encrypted. So all the responses are encrypted and all the requests are encrypted. Okay. Um, so they get encrypted. Somehow to encrypt them, there has to be a, a key that does this encryption or some mechanism. How, you know, in, you know, in sort of layman's terms, how do these keys get distributed? Because there is a fairly complicated system of saying, here, I didn't know who you were, but now I'm going to somehow trust you or at least trust you enough to encrypt your traffic. Um, kind of, how does, how does that process work? Because TLS is part of it, but isn't there isn't there something with keys or something that, that makes this work? Yeah. Um, so uh, part of TLS is um, choosing the key. That's maybe the most important part of the TLS protocol, yeah. right? It's like deciding that it's okay to choose a key and then choosing a key. Um, and one, one, I think, one thing I think about TLS that people don't realize is that every TLS sort of like, um, like, like if your browser makes a, a TLS connection to reddit.com and then it makes another TLS re- a connection to reddit.com, it's going to use different keys in both times. Like the key sort of gets invented um, at like during every TLS request. Um, ah, if interesting. That makes sense. Okay. Um, and then so so there's sort of like two different keys. Um, at, uh, so so one key is the key that like sort of like your browser and the server invent together um, using this key exchange uh, protocol called um, like EC not not ECDSA the other one. Elliptic curve Diffie Hellman. Elliptic curve Diffie Hellman. Uh, I think yeah. it's usually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, anyway, but it's not really important what the, what the key exchange protocol is called. But, but they, uh, and then the other thing that they need to do um, is decide that actually, because like one, one of the most important things in TLS is like, it doesn't matter if the information is encrypted, if you're sending the encrypted information to like the wrong person, right? Right. Like if, if it's like a fake person who's pretending to reddit.com, like, it's like sure it's encrypted, but like, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, fake, right? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, Reddit.com has a uh, a certificate which has a public key on it, which is sort of which which always stays the same, um, and like typically uh, this public key will stay the same for maybe like nine months, and then they'll they'll rotate it and get a new certificate um, with a new public key, um, and that public key is sort of like what decides that like okay you can actually enter into this uh, exchange where you decide on a key together. 
Um, and so the first thing, the very first thing your browser does actually before, uh, like before uh, sending the, H- the HTTP request and encrypting it is checking and being like, hey, is this really reddit.com, right, that I'm talking to? Right. Um, and the reason it knows that is that um, like it'll, it'll look at the, the certificate and the, and the public key that Reddit has sent it and it'll see who signed it. And it's like, did someone who I trust, like who the browser trusts, um, already um, sign this, like sign the certificate? Right. And this is where you get you get these uh, certificate authorities, sort of known, trusted people that you, you get into a relationship with. You validate that, that you are who you are. They digitally sign it or you digitally sign it. And then people can then trust that that relationship is or, you know, that you are actually talking to Reddit.com at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like the it, it used to be that that um, uh, all these certificate authorities would charge you money to get a certificate, which is why we didn't have a lot of TLS adoption on the Internet in the past. Yep. Um, and like the really big revolution is Let's Encrypt, which is this free certificate authority, right? Which lets anybody use TLS for free, um, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, be- the beauty of the internet and open source and, and somebody just being a good actor and uh, saying, hey, we're better off being secure than insecure. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Let me let me wrap up with one last thing because this has been this has been fantastic, and I'm sure you know if people want to dive into it more again, um, you know, we'll we will we will put things in the show notes that point to your content because um, it it does it goes into a whole other level of depth of this. Um, so I want to secure some things, um, but we did talk earlier in the in the show about these CDNs and load balancers, which are sort of intermediate points between me and actually getting to Reddit or getting to whatever content. Um, how does that work in terms of some sort of intermediate thing and in me encrypting traffic? Do they have to unencrypt the traffic and then re-encrypt it? Or how, how does that kind of relationship work when you have intermediaries like CDNs and load balancers? Yeah, that's an incredible question. Um, it's a really good point, which is if you want a CDN to be serving traffic for your website, you need to give them um, like... A, a valid certificate for your website, which is actually a huge amount of trust you're putting in them, right? Right. Um, and uh, one, one, one thing that people will very commonly do um, because of this is because, like, they're like, I don't want to give, like, the CDN, like, the, the TLS, like, key for my private key for my website, like, or right. not for my whole website. Um, so they'll frequently make a separate a website just for static files. Mm. Um, so for, 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 like, JavaScript um, or for PNGs or whatever. Um, and then give the CDN kind of the key for that and be like, that's okay. And then like the rest of my system, which is maybe more sensitive, um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep the private key for, for myself and serve from my own servers, which I control. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, it's sort of like I trust them, but I only trust them at some level of trust. Um, and so I'm going to kind of isolate them and keep them separated from, from the sort of crown jewels yeah. of, of my stuff. So, and that's uh, why you'll see that a lot of sites have a separate like assets domain. Like I think there's like githubassets.com or something, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, uh, this is always one of those fascinating things. If you, if you ever watch the very, very bottom of your browser, if you're curious as to how these things all work, if you ever watch the bottom of your browser, a lot of times you can see all the different, you know, uh, actual file paths and things that are coming and going as you're trying to get to various sites and so forth. So if yeah. you're kind of, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, and you can go into the network tab and see everything yeah. um, in developer tools and see every request and response. Um, and it's very fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and, and again, it all, it all kind of boils back to this thing of if you sort of want to know how things work, um, you know, uh, it is a protocol that lets you read it in human readable format. So, you know, your curiosity can be as deep as you want it to be. 
Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Well, listen, before we, uh, before we kind of wrap up, uh, first off again, thank you so much for all the knowledge. Um, what is the best way for folks to go find, um, you know, all the, all the great content that you've been creating and, and that you're, uh, that you're sharing with the world? Uh, my website is, uh, wizardzines.com, um, where I have all of my, my 12 zines that I've written. Um, and half of them are free and half of them you pay for. Um, okay. So if you want to just like check it out, I have one, I have one free one about networking, um, which sort of explains like about how, how like HTTP works and how TCP works. Um, like, like sort of like all the different layers of the network stack, right? Like what's TCP, what's DNS. Right. Um, and then I have one that I just released, which is about HTTP, which really explains the uh, HTTP protocol. Very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. With that, yeah, again, and like I mentioned, I, I followed it for a while. Uh, I've, you know, in particular, been kind of working on Kubernetes stuff. So I've been following that as well. It's been uh, very, very good to kind of go reassure that, you know, things I think I understand uh, make sense and other people are explaining them the same way. So, um, so Julia, thank you for that so much. Uh, folks, before we wrap up, uh, thanks again to this week's sponsors, Datadog and PricingWire. It's easy to learn more about PricingWire and book a strategy session at pricingwire.com. So folks with that, as always, I want to thank Julia for the time, uh, for myself and Aaron, everybody for listening, for telling a friend, for rating the show on iTunes tunes and other places uh thank you so much for for following the show and with that we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week thank you for listening to the cloudcast please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows show notes videos and everything social media 